Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Once again, Alan Dempsey comes through big time. He's our engineer. He gets us on the air, does it superbly. Uh, Andrew Hirdliska does the producing for the show. And I'm very pleased to introduce Dan Williams to you. Uh, He's in Carrollton, Georgia, professor of history at the University of West Georgia, And his book is out, The Politics of the Cross, A Christian Alternative to Partisanship. Dan, welcome to Orlando. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, Explain that title and the background of your book, Dan. Yeah. um, Well, I wrote The Politics of the Cross after writing some other books on the history of Christian's involvement in modern American politics. Uh, my first book was A History of the Christian Right, called God's Own Party. And uh, my second book was Defenders of the Unborn, which is about the early history of the pro-life movement. Both of those books were written for a general audience, and so while a, a large number of Christians read those books, they were not designed specifically uh, for the Church or for a, a Christian reading public. But the politics of the cross is, this is based on uh, as a Christian and as a historian, uh, over the past few years, like a lot of Americans, uh, I've asked the question, uh, how can our politics take a different trajectory uh, from the one uh, that, that, that they've taken? And it seems to me that the evangelical church is increasingly divided over politics. Uh, of course, there have always been differences among Christians as to how they should vote. But in recent years, I think that the, the moral fault lines have been drawn on both sides, uh, perhaps more distinctly than, than they have been before. And I think for someone who cares about church unity, it's also problematic from a gospel-centered perspective. I think that so much of Christian political witness is really not a witness to the gospel, but perhaps a, a witness to some other priorities uh, that we might have. And it occurred to me that as a historian, having done a lot of historical research on recent trends in American politics, that I was equipped to say something to the Church based on that historical research that perhaps a lot of other Christians at this particular moment might not. So the politics of the cross is my attempt to help Christians think through the implications of policy choices and ways in which we might more effectively kingdom priorities, gospel priorities, to the American political system in ways that will reflect love for our neighbor and ways that will reflect the voting choices of other Christians, even uh, if we might disagree uh, with some of their their particular ballot choices. Now, I want you to uh, explain the introduction, a different kind of politics. Uh, what exactly does that mean? So much of Christian politics in recent years has been about advancing uh, either the idea of a Christian America or protecting the interests of a country. And a different type of politics, I think, is, is a politics of the cross. That's a politics where we sacrifice our own interests in order to show love toward our neighbors. I, I think an authentic politics of the cross could be personally costly. Uh, it's definitely going to be self-sacrificial. It's going to be more concerned about the interests of others than the than our own uh, personal interests. Let's dive into the meat of your book, Dan. Uh, topic number one: the Protestant moralism of the Republican Party. Uh, fill us in on that. Sure. Uh, well. The Republican Party has always been a party that has been deeply concerned about morality. It started uh, in the 1850s as a a party to stop the expansion of slavery in the West. And after the Civil War, it had widespread appeal to to Protestants in the North. So if you were, say, a Methodist uh, in northern Ohio uh, in the 1880s, the chances were very high that you would be a Republican. And because it was associated with the the politics of middle-class Protestants, it very quickly gravitated toward 
properties that middle-class Protestants had. So in the late 19th century, that, that meant, uh, in many cases, prohibition. It meant uh, opposition to polygamy. Uh, it meant other causes that, that perhaps Protestants at the time cared about. Uh, in the mid-1950s, uh, it meant standing up for the civil religion of the Eisenhower years, uh, the idea of adding under God, under God to the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, of making In God We Trust the national motto. And then uh, in more recent decades, uh, in the late 20th century, it tended to take a, a very hard line. In every, in every one of those cases, it was a, a politics of, of Christian moralism, and in the early years especially, Protestant moralism. At one point, uh, it was the main party of, of mainline or, or even uh, theologically liberal Protestants. In more recent decades, uh, it's tended to be the party of, of white evangelicals. But as I point out uh, in the book, while some of those moral causes are good in and of themselves, they tend to not be particularly gospel-centered. They tend to be rather selective uh, in the moral issues that they choose, that, that are selected. For example, in the late 20th century, the evangelical Christian right tended to be very concerned about uh, homosexuality, the advance of gay rights in the nation. They tended to say a lot less about uh, the issue of divorce, which also, of course, had a, a widespread impact, negative impact on, on many families uh, in the, the late 20th century. And while they were very concerned about drug use uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, they were less concerned about uh, the effect that uh, arrests for, for drug possession might have on uh, some of the families of, of poor Americans and minority Americans, uh, combined perhaps with a uh, with too much faith in in the power of government regulation uh, and too little interest in a more comprehensive set of kingdom priority issues, that I think is a, a reason for Christians to hesitate to put too much faith in the Republican Party. Uh, as I note in the chapter, there are some good things that uh, the conservatives have historically stood for and perhaps continue to stand for. But overall, a, a Christian who looks at the Republican Party platform is going to have to say that this is, is a far cry uh, from a gospel-centered witness. Dan Williams is our guest. Uh, he's at the University of West Georgia. Uh, tell us about uh, the next topic, the secularized liberal Protestantism of the Democratic Party. I'm eager to hear this. Sure. For a lot of people who are not uh, Democrats and who, who are uh, theologically conservative Christians, the Democratic Party appears as a, a sinister secular force standing for those issues that that Christians uh, have had have historically opposed and, and perhaps should oppose uh, issues like abortion rights, for example. So it may surprise some deeply connected. Uh, the Democratic Party has been over the years to a, uh, to a set of Christian values. It's just that those Christian values have generally not come from white evangelical uh, theologies, but rather from uh, Catholic theology, uh, African-American Protestantism, and above all, uh, white mainline or theologically liberal Protestantism. In the early mid-20th century, liberal Protestantism stood for the values of equality, the values of the advancement of democracy, uh, a certain and a strong belief in the government as a force for alleviating poverty and for creating a, a better society. And the Democratic Party absorbed these values. In the early years uh, of the New Deal and, and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, a lot of these values were still heavily Christianized. That is, some of the promoters of the New Deal and the Great Society correctly recognized the influence of Christian teaching on their, their particular uh, political programs. Uh, over the course of the late 20th century, beginning as early as, say, the, the beginning of the 1970s, polarized. And My guest, and uh, we'll get right back to him, 
is Dan Williams. He's talking about his book, The Politics of the Cross, A Christian Alternative to Partisanship. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. We'll be right back following these messages. Dan Williams is with us. We're talking about his book, The Politics of the Cross. Dan, I want you to finish uh, before the break. You were talking about the secularized liberal Protestantism of the Democratic Party. Uh, Please finish your thoughts. Sure. Yeah, so in the late 20th century, uh, white liberal Democrats tended to uh, secularize their values. Their values didn't really change substantially. They were still rooted in that uh, historic uh, liberal Protestant concern for equality for uh, for poverty relief, for the rights of minorities, but now they tended not to present those uh, directly. So uh, for a number of Christians looking at the Democratic Party, they correctly recognize, I think, uh, the truth of a lot of the principles that the Democratic Party has historically stood for. But just like the Republican Party, the Democratic Party has mixed those values with uh, some other assumptions that I think are, are not Christian at all. And so, uh, again, a Christian who looks at the Democratic Party is going to have to be selective in what they appropriate from the, from the Democratic Party platform. Uh, even though there is that grounding in historic Christian values, and even though there is a, still a lot of contemporary Christian support churches, uh, a, a Christian is going to have to be cautious about adopting the entire platform just as a Christian would have to be equally cautious about adopting the Republican Party platform. Now, you next to a chapter simply called Abortion. Uh, what are you writing there, Dan? I think most Christians correctly recognize that uh, abortion is morally problematic. And in that chapter, I, I do begin with a case for the right to life uh, as legitimate historic Christian teaching, something that we need to defend. But then in the reason what has traditionally been labeled pro-life in terms of, of our modern political system may not actually be protecting the unborn, and that perhaps the best pathway to protecting uh, the unborn, to uh, defending uh, the right to life and, and to reducing the abortion rate in this country maybe to think outside of the box and perhaps critique both parties, but then work within uh, even the Democratic Party to try to promote policies that will empower women to make the In this chapter, I I look, I I do some statistical analysis to examine exactly who is getting abortions today and what would be necessary to dissuade them uh, from making that choice. And the, the analysis is, is somewhat complex, and, and, but just to quickly summarize it, I would say that uh, the vast majority, about 75% of women who are getting abortions today are, are coming from low-income backgrounds. Uh, the majority uh, are mothers, single mothers, who've already made the choice for life once, and they're often overwhelmed uh, with their financial obligations, uh, with uh, other vision, having... Uh, a second or, or third child and carrying this pregnancy to term. And so I argue that, that perhaps a way to promote life is to look at larger social structures that might uh, lead to, to an increase in the abortion rate or, or, or that might make it difficult to reduce the abortion rate and to, to address those social structures um, rather than simply settle for passing laws uh, restricting abortion uh, at the margins, which is so often what uh, people mean when they say that they're they're voting pro-life. Uh, so in this chapter, I, as with Christians, how to vote, uh, but I do try to help them to realize that the the issue is more complex than they imagine. And though we might agree on the moral priorities, uh, the the question of how to translate those moral priorities into politics might involve a more complex policy analysis than what um, a lot of Christians have assumed. And I encourage people to dive into that policy analysis and and think through the implications of some of the voting choices that they might make. And what do you write about uh, marriage and sexuality at uh, part four? In marriage and sexuality, I I show that 
as many conservative Christians assume, uh, the Democratic Party has deviated quite a bit from historic norms of of uh, gospel-centered or, or biblical-centered uh, sexual values. On the other hand, I argue that the that the problem is much broader than even a lot of politically conservative Christians imagine. That the issue is not really same-sex marriage. Uh, the issue is actually uh, a cultural shift that occurred in this country starting a century ago uh, toward separating marriage from values of, of larger uh, institutions in which it, it had been lodged and making it far more individualistic and about personal fulfillment. And that once that shift happened, it was almost inevitable that we would go down the particular road that we've traveled as a society. And so attempts to reverse this now through law are likely not going to um, go very far. So then the question is, well, how can a Christian take a stand that would promote the values of marriage, that would promote biblical sexual ethics in, in the political options are, are limited. But I, I do make a case that there is much to be said for economic policies uh, that would make it easier for people to, uh, to get married uh, if they're lower income. Because right now, uh, there is a huge educational divide, uh, both a huge and growing educational divide um, in marriage and, and also an income divide. The, the majority now of people who have no more than a high school education uh, are going to, uh, to have a child before uh, they get married. And that's, that's something that's quite new. Lines. And I think in, in view of this social class divide uh, over marriage, I think it's really important for Christians to, to realize that discussions of poverty, discussions of, of the economy, and, and how uh, our political choices affect those who are lower income are, are all part of this conversation. Now, uh, let's get into race. Uh, that's chapter five. Yes. Well, uh, of course, race is definitely a hot-button topic uh, in the United States right now. It was as I was uh, finishing the uh, last part of this book um, at the end of last spring, right after uh, the, uh, the death of George Floyd. And, of course, that's in the news again. Uh, this week, so this is always a, a timely issue, I think. In the, the chapter on race, I try to look at uh, American history from the standpoint of African Americans, the African American experience, uh, to give white readers a sense of, of what has happened over the past few centuries, and then to look at some areas of, of contemporary racial discrimination. And the point that I try to make in all of this is that so much of what we see racial fault lines and historic racial fault lines is really about uh, poverty. It's really about economics, that uh, we're not going to be able to address structural racism in this country without looking at the structures that have kept particular people from getting uh, out of poverty uh, or achieving what other people in the middle class might have achieved. And so in that chapter, I, I point out some reasons why African-Americans continue um, as, as a group. That is, there are, of course, many individual exceptions to this, but, but as a group continue to uh, whites, to remain behind whites um, in terms of home ownership, uh, savings rates, uh, income levels, uh, really any economic measure that we might, might want. And then I look at the at a couple of common conservative critiques to that. One uh, of them of those is, well, isn't this about uh, marriage? That is, African Americans who get married and stay married are are much less likely to be impoverished than those who are single parents. And I address that by saying, yes, that is uh, a correct. But then the question is, how do we translate that into 
policy implications. Uh, the answer is not to simply say, well, if people would just get married, then, then the problem would be solved, but rather the, the issue is how can we create, again, how can we create the structures that would encourage that? And so in this chapter, I argue both for a what we might call a liberal or progressive political agenda, that is uh, looking at, at uh, economic structures and trying to create uh, a structural change in the economy that will allow people to get out of poverty, and also look at uh, a conservative value, which I would support, uh, that is in encouraging marriage in the two-parent. Now, uh, 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 Dan Williams is our guest. Uh, he's at... Uh, the University of West Georgia's book is called The Politics of the Cross. Uh, chapter 6, Dan, Wealth and Poverty. Tell us more. In many ways, this ties together a lot of the key themes of the book, because in, in several of the early chapters, I argue that, that the major blind spot uh, in terms of a policy analysis on the part of many Christians is this neglect of, of concerns about the poor. Uh, that abortion, at its root, I argue, is cannot be separated from the issue. Uh, and the same, the same thing is true of marriage and race. And so, in this chapter, I tie all of that together and ask the question: Why is our country um, unable to really address some fundamental structural issues that keep people impoverished? Issues like. Uh, debt, especially college loan debt and medical debt, uh, issues of um, the rising uh, cost of living, particularly in regard to housing and, and yet stagnant wages, um, issues of the working poor, the, the idea that people can be working 40 or 50 hours a week and, and it's still not enough to lift them over uh, the poverty line uh, if they have a job or, or something's only slightly above minimum wage. And I suggest that if we really care about the poor, as hundreds and by some people's count even up to 2,000 Bible verses command us to do, it's something that, that's a key theme in both the Old and New Testaments, then our politics is going to have to look at the, the structures of poverty and the question of how do, we, uh, how do we make political choices that will move the country closer to respecting the dignity of the poor and, and helping them avoid debt entrapment and uh, a, a permanent um, permanent situation in which they're unable to attain uh, entry into a basic standard of living. And I argue that that should be a Christian priority. Uh, it's reflective of, of our respect for people's human dignity, and I argue that it is politically achievable if we adopt a type of political thinking that, that might take us away from the, the political slogans of the moment. Now, <clears throat> Dan, uh, there's an afterword. Uh, the politics of the cross and the preservation of the nation. Uh, what are you writing there? I think that in our political witness uh, as evangelical Christians, we've been too quick to gravitate toward single-issue politics, whatever those might be. So in the late 19th century, uh, it was the, the temperance movement, the campaign to, to uh, make alcohol uh, illegal in the country. Uh, in the late 20th and early 21st century, it, it's arguably been abortion. And uh, at other points in American history, it's been another single issue. And while those, those causes... Uh, are not necessarily wrong. Uh, as I said in this book, I do make for the unborn. They, we need to realize that those single-issue campaigns can never substitute for a much more comprehensive view of human sin and a much more comprehensive uh, understanding of, of uh, the kingdom of God uh, as applied to our current situation. And if it's true that sin pervades all of our institutions and our behavior, then outlawing a, a single evil is not necessarily going to be the path to righteousness. Instead, what we need to look at is a
My guest has been Dan Williams, talking about his book, The Politics of the Cross, A Christian Alternative to Partisanship. Uh, We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word, in Orlando. Dan Williams, our guest in that first segment uh, from uh, Carrollton, Georgia, University of West Georgia, talking about his book, The Politics of the Cross. James Emery White, founding senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. His book is out after, I believe, uh, James Emery White. What a great name. Jim, welcome. How you doing? Good. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm curious about your name, uh, that a middle name goes with you. How did that happen? Um, well, you know, when it first, I first started writing, there was another author by the name of James E. White. I that, see. Uh, and my publisher said, well, uh, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so we, James Emery White has been there ever since. Um, Jim, let's talk about your book, After I Believe. What does that title mean? Pat, I, at Mecklenburg, we have over 70% of our growth comes from people who were previously unchurched. And so we've been on the front lines of very far from God. And um, obviously, when you're involved in any type of outreach, uh, uh, you're going to have to face what comes not just before in terms of reaching them, but what comes after. And one of the things that we found was that whether a brand-new Christian or someone who's been a Christian for 20 years, real foundational kind of mentoring, coaching, that, that, that basis for a life of spiritual growth so that you're more like Jesus now than you were a year ago was absent. And so I wrote this book not simply for new Christians but for very you know, long-term Christians. Okay, you, we believe. Now what? How do you really have a life that's dissected by Christ? You're you're growing, um, and so it was a it was a fun book to put together, but and and attempted to be very comprehensive. Jim, I want you to explain uh, the first topic: identities, deceptions, and myths. Well, before you start talking about things you can do to grow and develop yourself spiritually and laying that foundation, the most important thing to realize is what has happened? If you've come to Christ, you've become a follower. What exactly has happened? Well, your identity has changed. And I go into several of those, but the most foundational one is is that you've been adopted. You are your status has, has you know radically changed. And that has ramifications all throughout your spiritual life and all the aspects of growth because you're, you're, you're dealing with a father, and you're approaching him as a son or a cherished daughter. And so that's explored. And then the deceptions that we have when it comes to growth, uh, deception that it's just religious rituals or just knowledge or, it's, um, or that growth happens instantaneously or it's all about how long I've been a Christian and you know, I can do it by myself and just so many different things that need to be cleared away before begin um, the dynamic uh, dynamic of a Christ life. Let's move to topic two. It's simply called How to Bible. It's kind of a unusual uh, phrasing, Jim. Explain that. Well, the Bible is something meant to be dynamic and engaged and, and drawn from and interacted with. It's not just some staid, tired, dusty text. It's, you know, living and breathing and intersecting and dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's meant to be engaged in a very dynamic way. And so um, that's why it's how to Bible, how to really, you know, some time is spent in the chapter about what makes it so special, but I really try to get into how do you read it, how do you interpret what you read, um, you know, where do you begin, and how do you really walk through the thorny issues that often are more complicated than we make them, of application in terms of where the Bible speaks, where it doesn't speak, the difference between principle versus something that is absolutely prescriptive. And so it's, it's, um, it explores all of those areas as well as how to read it with reflection and application. Let's dive into topic number three, talking to God.
Jim? Yeah, I, I'm, I can hear you now. Yeah, l- let's uh, dive into topic number three, talking to God. Yeah, that, that chapter is on prayer. And one of the things that about, about praying is, is that everybody, you know, most people pray, Christian or not, but most people don't know how. <laughs> and they look for mechanics and things like that, and there's a place for that. But the real heart of learning to pray is to learn the, the characteristics of prayer. And things like I'm um, to pray with intimacy and with expectation. I'm um, to pray in a way that's dependent and submitted. These are kind of the 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 uh, the way to pray. There's a there's a sentiment to it. There's an emotional feel to it. There's a relational dynamic that's to be there. We really are to talk to God uh, as Abba, as Father. And it is a very intimate thing. And so in that chapter, I actually walk through the Lord's Prayer and pull out the dynamics of what Jesus was trying to say to us. Because he wasn't saying, just parrot this prayer back to me. He was saying, pray like this. Pray along these kinds of lines. And so that's what that chapter explores. Let's move to this one, spending time with God. Yeah, I think that there's a, a, a real need, and I know it's in my life, for time with God on a daily basis or dangerously close to daily. And if you were to just say to someone, you know, spend time with God, there's a lot of people that just would look at you like, I have no idea what that would mean, no idea what that would involve. Um, you know, I get that if I spend five minutes a day with someone, I'm five minutes a day close, and, and, I, and I know that time with God is good and needed, but I don't know how to do that. I don't even know what it would involve. And so that chapter gets into, then it looks at how Jesus spent time with his father while he was on earth and what it did for him. And then I look at the various components and dynamics of how to spend time with God. And then I end it by just saying, look, everybody can start with seven minutes a day. So I break down how do you spend even seven minutes a day with God to start this in your life. James, <clears throat> James Emery White is our guest. He's in Charlotte, North Carolina. The book is called After I Believe. Jim, we've arrived now at uh, topic number five, experiencing life in community. Uh, What's that about? Uh, Yes, the chapter on experiencing life in community um, explores the importance of how we all want to love and be loved and know and be known and serve and be served and uh, celebrate and be celebrated. Uh, it's a myth that you can do the Christian life on your own. It's not meant to be done on your own. And so in that chapter, I explore how do you really engage community and have it be for your life and the power of relationships and how to get them into your life. And so it's a very strategic chapter. Uh, can you give us one insight on how to do it? Well, one of the is um, the importance of intentionally uh, getting involved in a local church I think that's extremely biblical, and and once you're there to actively court relationships, uh, spiritually strategic relationships, and uh, ones that can serve as mentors for your life, and to seek out people, because, I I mean, for me, uh, I grow just exponentially when I find someone who is further along in the Christ life than I am. And even having a single coffee with them and asking questions and probing how they do life and aspects about marriage and family and is, is absolutely just so uh, invaluable. Uh, while we're on the topic, tell me about your church, Mecklenburg Community Church. We started as a church plant. I was the church planter in 1992. And... Um, as mentioned, we have experienced consistently over the years over 70% of our growth coming from people who were previously unchurched. It's a very young church. Uh, in fact, it's skewed younger every year for the last decade, uh, mostly people in their late 20s, early 30s. Uh, even our staff is very young. About three-fourths of our staff are in their 20s. So I'm the resident old guy. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, um, uh, we're having a lot of fun, and even during this past year, when I was challenging to so many churches um, for and uh, are actually um, beginning a, a, another building program uh, because of just what has happened in terms of size and numbers and, and outreach. And so we're, uh, these are fun days. 
James Emery White is our guest. His book, After I Believe, uh, Jim, we've now arrived at Worshiping in Spirit and Truth. Yeah, when you talk about worship, uh, a lot of people don't really know what that means. They might feel, feel like, okay, that I go sing some songs, maybe a little bit of ritual. But there's so much more to it than that, particularly when you dig into In Spirit and Truth, which is to entail. And so in that chapter, I explore what does it mean to worship in spirit, what does it mean to worship in truth, and how both are crucial, and then go into the many, many ways that you can worship. Because it's not simply music. It's a, worship can be very physical, and it can be acts, and it can be events, and uh, obviously um, it includes, uh, includes the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And so all of that is explored in there so that it can be maximized for someone's life and truly engaged. Jim, when we get to chapter 7, called Becoming a Player, well, I'm curious, what's that mean? Well, one of the things that happens when somebody becomes a Christ follower is that they are given at least one spiritual gift. It could be leadership, it could be administration, it could be in the arts. I mean, it's, it's not limited to any one thing. I think the lists that are in the Scripture are more indicative than they are exhaustive. And there's all the indications that we really are to get in touch with our spiritual gifts and our passions and our personality types and really find out where um, we are to serve accordingly, to do what we are um, through the local church of which we are a part and through that also to the wider kingdom. And so what their shape is uh, and how they're wired up, and so as an indicator of where God really wants to use them and show up in disproportionate ways for impact. So uh, becoming a player is this is how you get off the sidelines and into the game where you're really making a difference with your life. How do you discover that one spiritual gift? And secondly, Jim, uh, can you have more than one spiritual gift? Yes, you can. <clears throat> you can have. Usually what happens is, uh, and one of the easiest ways to find your spiritual gift, if you're totally uh, starting from scratch, is there are numerous spiritual gifts in a number of questions. I've got uh, referencings to that in the book where you can take a test and it asks uh, very penetrating pointed questions that aren't hard to answer, but really do help you say, oh, you know, that that rings true for me. That is that is who I am. That is where I've had you know God show up in the past. And uh, that is something that's natural for me or, or you know, I, I'm interested in. But um, usually what happens when people get tested uh, and with some of these inventories is they find a cluster of gifts at the top, um, a cluster of gifts at the bottom that they have absolutely, you know, completely get zeros on. And then you really want to look at the gifts at the very top and begin exploring how God can use those and to actually put yourself into it. You know, say, all right, if this is leadership, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue leadership, put myself into leadership opportunities and uh, develop that gift. Uh, James Emery White is our guest, uh, and uh, we've got a break coming up, and then we're going to dive into other topics. Uh, but let's get into number eight first, Jim. Positioning your heart. Uh, explain that to us. Well, you know, that's one of the things that um, your heart is also. And People think that they think that there's a you know there's going to be a chapter on money or stewardship. They often often think, okay, that's just going to be one whole chapter on tithing. Let me skip it. Uh, it's so 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 much more in terms of things like getting out of debt and saving for the future and just being having that financial freedom that everybody longs for. And so in that chapter, I detail what is involved in a comprehensive approach to. Um, you know, your life as a Christ follower and money, and God's dream for it, which is to um, bring freedom. Pretty comprehensive chapter on things, everything from getting out of debt to beginning savings to um, being generous, all of those things, and what it means for our spiritual life. James Emery White is our guest. He's in Charlotte, founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church. We're talking about his book, After I Believe. Speaking of books, my most recent book is out. Uh, it's called The Reluctant Leader. And we look at why 
oftentimes people are reluctant to lead. And then uh, as leaders, they're reluctant to um, have a mentor. Uh, they're reluctant to uh, let people go when, when it's needed. Uh, they're reluctant in so many areas. And we dive into that. Uh, go up to Amazon, a wonderful way to order books, of course. Reluctant Leader is my latest. Uh, Jim White's book is out after, I believe, uh, we've got more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 at FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. I can recommend to you, after I believe it's a good read and it'll be valuable to you, James Emery White, the author, is our guest. Jim, we've arrived at uh, position number nine, achieving maximum impact. I think we all want to do that, don't we? Well, I would hope so, and I make a try to make an argument and a case in that chapter that if you as a Christ follower want to make the most maximum impact you possibly can, who are far from God, draw near. Helping those who don't, uh, are not in a saving relationship with God through Christ to explore that for their lives. And um, and so, yes, it's unashamedly a chapter on evangelism, but when people hear the word evangelism, they often shy away, they feel like it. It's something that is alien to their personality. They're intimidated by it. I try to de-weird it quite a bit in that chapter because um, it was weird for me, too, at first, when I first became Christian. So I spent a lot of time about what evangelism is not, and that it really is something as simple as investing in people and then extending strategic invitations um, and experiences that will help them explore. Um, in fact, I actually... Uh, the book I had out before this, Pat, was called Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians. It was mm-hmm. written as a book that you could give to a non-Christian friend. Uh, and so I'm very passionate about this. But um, the average Christian will never share their faith with a non-Christian for their entire life. That's been surveyed over, over and again. And I really want to make a case for that aspect of being a Christ follower, that that should be just a natural part of your not something weird, just natural. Why is it so difficult for us? I think we don't know how to do it. Or we're going to get into a conversation that's over our heads. I think it also can be the fact that, um, you know, quite frankly, and this is what's sad, is that we're not confident in the message of Christ ourselves. Um, And so we don't have that boldness. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons all of them should be addressed um, we should view it as here is somebody that is, you know, they're standing in the middle of a road and there's a truck coming at them and we can at least shout at them, yell, go tackle them, get them out of the way, you know, to save their life. And, um, of course, what we're talking about with eternity is, you know, so much. Put it this way, he was actually fussing at other atheists. Uh, he said, why are you getting mad at Christians about proselytizing? Why are you mad at Christians for sharing this? I mean, if what they say they believe, how much would you have to hate someone, not them? Keeping in step, Jim, uh, topic number 10, what's that mean? Well, the last chapter, last investment in the book is is all about um, the the power and presence and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which... Um, you know, enters into our lives at the moment version, and we begin to, and he takes up residence in us. And we already have all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to have. The question is, how much of does the Holy Spirit have of you? And so there is this sense of, how do you keep in step with the Spirit? And as Paul says, be being filled, that present, ongoing, continuous sense, wherever increasing sectors of your inner world and life are given over to the Holy Spirit's leadership. And how do you follow promptings and listen for those promptings and just not grieve the Holy Spirit? And so it's a very important chapter, and I think in many ways, uh, understanding the day-in, day-out workings of the Holy Spirit is is often uh, a mystery to people. And so uh, hopefully that chapter cleans that up quite a bit. Jim, I I want to spend a little more time on that topic. Uh, 54 years ago, uh, I invited Christ to come into my life in Spartanburg, South Carolina. I was the general manager of the Phillies Farm Club there. It was February of 1968. 
and uh, and and I had a dramatic conversion experience. So when I accepted Christ, let me see if I've got it right. The Holy Spirit came into my heart, into my life, and 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 in full blast, and and that's all I needed. I'm, I'm, I, there, there's not going to be two or three other Holy Spirits that come in. I I, I just need to get this clear in my head, and now. <clears throat> Uh, I listen to the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Can I talk to the Holy Spirit? Do I pray to the Holy Spirit? What do I do with him? It's really interesting. I mean, we obviously um, we're dealing with the Holy Spirit as a person. Uh, the, the idea of the Trinity is that you have three persons who are one God, not three gods, but three persons are one God, and the Holy Spirit is not an it or a force, but a person, mm-hmm. personal, with a personality. And, you know, it's you can pray to the Trinity, you know, pray to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, most instances of prayer in the Bible, you're praying to the Father. But, um, the Holy Spirit will work in, and, and in concert with our experience and our obedience. I, I talk about it in the chapter as, it's like when you, when you are obedient and to the promptings and leading of the Holy Spirit, it's like, you know, he's, he's able to take up increasing space in your life. When you grieve him, it's like you drive him away. And so part of keeping in step with the Spirit is that sense of, 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 of walking in step, keeping in step, following the promptings, uh, communing through things such as prayer, and letting the Holy Spirit take up increasing acreage of your life. Your afterword is called The Committed Life. Uh, what are you writing in the afterword, Jim? I want to challenge people at the very end um, to be fully in, in terms of commitment. You know, when I, when I became a Christian at 20 uh, years old, when I was in college, I had a lot of head knowledge, but I didn't have any sense of Jesus as leader. Uh, and I really wanted to get into the different ways that we often dodge commitment or don't understand commitment or we're not fully in. And one of the things that just grieves me is how many people – uh, leave, lead almost lives. They were almost sold out, almost. And so I get into that with uh, that final chapter to just really challenge people about what it means to, to be uh, completely sold out for Jesus and what that looks like in sight and sound and smell and taste and feel and uh, in a way that I hope really encourages them about that kind of adventure in life. Jim, let's go back to age twenty in your life, uh, a, a junior in college. Where were you, and how did, and what happened, and and then after Christ came into your life, then what happened, and how did you know you were called to preach? I was a I was a mess in college, and I remember one night in a dorm room, arguing with a Mormon roommate of mine. Mm. about all that was wrong with Mormon theology and thinking, and he just looked at me and he said, Jim, how can you say anything at all to me with how you live? Mm. And that was the start of kind of a spiritual reflection time. I had three uh, Christian friends who kept inviting me to a campus Christian ministry. I kept saying no. Um, Then I went through some real um, knee-buckling times where, like, I hit the ground on one knee, and I knew I needed to put the other knee down. So when they next asked me to go, I went, and at that meeting, uh, the Spirit directly to me and where I was at and the union of head and heart and belief and, and behavior and, and Christ as not just forgiver but as leader. And I gave my life to Christ that very night and knew instantly that I was to give my life to some type of ministry. I just It was a simultaneous thing for me. Mm. I didn't know what. I just knew that, you know, my gifts were primarily in leadership and communication. I, you know, so I just have, we're, have been following that ever since. I had many junctures along the way before becoming a church planter. I would have told you I felt like I would do anything but be a pastor. So I was a little reluctant. Jim, how did your friends and your cohorts at college react to your decision? Stunned. Stunned. Mm. I had quite a reputation. And I remember, um, you know, I had to pull many a person aside and just say, look, I know how I was, and I am so sorry. But you need to understand, I have become a Christian, and and it has rocked my world, and I'm just not that person anymore. Mm. And so, uh, and then... Uh, and 
and I just, you know, yeah. So it was it was quite a turnaround for me. I get the sense, uh, and, and a friend of mine referred to your type perhaps as, as good time Charlies, um, big man on campus, um, frat man, all of the above. Maybe all of the above. I, I, I went there to, to, you know, I was involved in athletics. I was involved in student government. I was involved in leadership. I was involved in all the, you know, fraternity. I was involved in everything. I was, I, when I hit college, I just, you know, went into a thousand different directions. But the main thing was I was living very far from God. Well, I'm so glad that we had a good visit. I'm so glad for what you've done in Charlotte, Jim. And uh, congrats on the book. And uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. I'm so Pleased to have had you on the air. James Emery White has been our guest. We've got a wrap-up after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Dan Williams was our guest in that first segment, uh, talking about his book, The Politics of the Cross a Christian alternative to partisanship. <coughs> and then James Emery White joined us from Charlotte. Uh, and we talked about his book, After I Believe. Speaking of books, I want you to check out a new one that is coming right now. It's called Revolutionary Leadership. The book is just coming out. Uh, it's about the key leaders in the Revolutionary War period who led us uh, so courageously uh, uh, and helped us form a country. And we, we look at about 30 different leaders in that period, some very famous, some not so, and, uh, and just study them and, and uh, what they did so well as leaders. Uh, you'll enjoy it. American Revolution. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990. And FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Walk with the King today and be a blessing.